I hear some of our, our friends who are well-intentioned saying, we need great theology and singable melodies. No, we don't. We need great theology and great melodies. You know, singable melodies are useless. Nobody cares about singable melodies. People want great melodies. And so that's what makes it so hard. And so I think what I would love to see is a renaissance in singing great hymns. I'm Dan Darling, and this is The Way Home Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the ERLC National Conference on August 25th and 26th. Visit ERLC.com slash events. Have you recently sung the song In Christ Alone or The Power of the Cross or O Church Arise recently at church or at a concert or in your car? Well, if you have, you've been singing songs written by my guest today, Keith Getty. Keith and his wife, Kristen, occupy a unique place in the world of music today as preeminent modern hymn writers. Uh, They've reinvented the traditional hymn form and have really created a distinguished catalog of songs that teach Christian doctrine by crossing the world of traditional composition with contemporary melody. Originally from North Ireland, Keith's song in Christ Alone has been the most popular song in UK churches for eight consecutive years. Uh, His music has been recorded by artists including Natalie Grant, Christian Stanfill, Ricky Skaggs, Newsboys, and Owl City. He's appeared on CBS, PBS, and the BBC and has performed at venues ranging from the Ryman Auditorium and Carnegie Hall to the Pentagon. Recently, I sat down with Keith Getty at the NRB convention here in Nashville to talk about a new project called Facing a Task Unfinished, to talk modern hymn writing, and to talk about the state of contemporary worship music. Keith Getty, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Appreciate that. Thank you, Daniel. I am delighted to be here. So I want to talk mostly about this new project that you have called Facing a Task Unfinished. Very exciting project that you've launched. What was sort of the inspiration behind starting this? What what motivated you to do this? Well, I think it all began with a song. Um, Facing a Task Unfinished was a hymn written in the 1930s when the Chinese government, as you know at that time, the Red Mm -hmm. Army had taken over and... um, and they were looking, looking to eradicate Christianity, the idea that if we squeeze Christianity mm-hmm. out of the public square, out mm-hmm. of politics, out of media, out of education, and, and make it more and more difficult for Christians to do anything that you can ultimately eradicate Christianity. There were less than 750,000 believers in China at the time. And the China Inland Mission, founded by Hudson Taylor, which had many mm-hmm. Southern Baptist missionaries, yeah. such as John and Betty Stam, went out during that time. John and Betty Stam obviously were cruelly killed. Uh, but, but Frank Houghton, the, the bishop of the East Seminary of China, believed in the power of hymns to help galvanize communities. He eventually became this, the executive director of China Inland Mission. But during that time, he wrote a hymn called Thou Who Was Rich Beyond All Splendor for the Death of the Stams. And then during that same time, they reached a point where they had lost 200 missionaries, death, mm. prison, returning off the field, couldn't cope anymore. And so they had a special prayer meeting for it. And he said, I'm going to write a hymn to try and get us more missionaries. It wasn't a great job advertisement of that stage in China. It wasn't the most <laughs> yeah. attractive thing in the field there. Yeah. They didn't have Twitter back then, right? No, no, I don't think pension plans were great. Yeah, yeah. So, so here with this hymn, Facing a Task Unfinished, and 204 missionaries came out, with most with their coffins, mm. to serve the Lord in China. Wow. And today there are over 80 million believers in China. So one stat has it at 132 million wow. believers in China. Wow. And we suspect the number is around about 100 million, but it is the single greatest growth of Christianity in the history of the world against this backdrop of anti-Christian so-called pseudo-progressive thought. So so it's an incredible story that needs to be known. The, mm. the, and um, so they asked me to rewrite the hymn 
really just adding a chorus to it last year for their 150th anniversary. It's now called OMF, and um, and so we've we rewrote the hymn, and um, it took off. And then, as you know, last weekend, a hundred countries around the world did a special day to sing the hymn. Yeah. Over a hundred, a hundred countries around the world, and um, 1.2 million registered believers. Um, from 5,200 churches mm. agreed to sing the song. And that doesn't include all the denominations who also registered. We don't know how many there was. There. Wow. So the number could have been between them and, and secret churches and, and people who didn't sign up. There could be many more. So it, it was a really... The, the goal is to get people to think about eva- mission and evangelism again. We, are, we in, in the West are, are, are seeing similar tension in, in the political sphere and all the spheres mm-hmm. around that, the knock-on effect that that has in all our spheres. And the modern worship movement has responded by not having a, a proper song about missionary evangelism for a whole generation now. Mm. So we need to be singing about it. If we're not singing about it, we're not thinking about it, we're not feeling it, we're not praying it, and it's highly unlikely it's going to affect the moment-by-moment choices that we're making that affect yeah. our character and our lives and our legacy. You know, I, I wonder if singing hymns every Sunday in church is going to be more formative than maybe in the past, just with the pressures on Christianity in the West you know, in a, in a sort of Bible Belt culture where everybody's supposed to be a Christian, you know, you kind of go and you sing and you, it's kind of a, a rote thing. But when when you're actually facing pressure for being a Christian, opposition, and you come in and sing hymns, you know, how, how formative is that? I think it's a great point, Daniel, a great question. I think, I mean, first of all, we turn to Scripture, which is what Jesus pointed us to turn to. And we see back in the Old Testament, right from the Song of Moses and the Song of Aaron, God's people learning their sense of heritage, their sense of identity, yeah. their sense of who God is, yeah. what He is about, and how He acts. And ultimately, their own identity seen through that, rather than something that they should invent, but seeing their own identity as being in, coming out of that. We see it in the Psalms, where we get this incredible... A canvas of the God of the yeah. Bible from, from, from judge to shepherd. And then out of that, the own honesty that we can have as human beings as we respond to that and deal with everything from singing and praising and dancing mm. to, to doubt and questioning and silence. So, so that, that's happened in the Old Testament. It seems Paul was pretty determined uh, in the New Testament to get the early believers singing. Mm-hmm. We see Paul and Silas in prison in their dire circumstance. We see, mm-hmm. we see Paul writing to these churches when they were beginning to struggle in Ephesus and other places and saying, get together and sing, as if that's mm-hmm. top of the list. He seems to feel it is. Yeah. Most of our churches actually, you know, conservative Bible-believing churches included, are tending to reduce singing in church mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Paul's saying, no, get together and sing. It's that important. Uh, and obviously it is the rhythms of heaven. It is the pattern of heaven. Mm-hmm. But we look at church history. We see it in the, in the saints. I see it in St. Patrick, who brought Christianity to my country, which was Ireland. I see it in the reformers yeah. um, who really brought on so much advancement. I see it in the revivalists. Mm-hmm. When, when these people come, they come great songs. And I think that's why that's why the modern worship movement has got it so incredibly wrong, um, is, that, is that God's people learn their faith in such significant part through what they sing. Mm, that, I, that, that, that if pastors decide to wash their hands of choosing the songs in a Sunday, and if pastors decide to wash their hands of teaching why we sing in the first place. Mm. We're going to grow up with a generation of very weak, very confused, and Christians without anywhere close to the depth of the believers who've been in previous generations. And that seems like a, a shallow faith that won't survive a cultural storm, you know, pressure against it. Survive, never mind thrive. Yeah. Never mind rid a country of slavery or write to Brandenburg concerns. Yes, yeah, yeah. When you started your ministry and you started writing modern hymns, did you think that they would take off like this, that they would be popular, that there'd be this sort of renaissance of of hymn writing in the worship Um, movement? Well, 
all I knew was I, I felt it was really important, you know, and there were some people who were really godly, mostly older people who really encouraged me to do it, who I admired. Mm -hmm. So from that, that gave me some confidence. But in the early years, we got laughed at a time most of the time. So Like that won't sell and that, yeah. All that what kind of doing, thing. Yeah. People send me emails about, you know, you should consider you know, selling black and white TVs or typewriters. I may have a future too, you know. <laughs> so yeah. so it's been, it has been a hard journey because primarily because pastors are washing their hands of such an important Christian discipline. Mm -hmm. They're not and involved because, in Yeah, the, and because they're not the teaching the theology of it. Um, I heard about one, a famous conservative seminary, which you and I both know of, um, recently they asked a class, is something even important? And two mm -hmm. guys put their hands up and mm -hmm. said, I think so. Do you know what I mean? To something, that is, to something that is a foretaste of heaven, to something that is commanded over a hundred times in scripture. So it is up to the pastors in the churches to catch a grip, to take a lead, to be the man, and to really you know, teach their congregations the privilege the utter privilege, the eternal privilege that it is to sing, the command that it is to sing, the, the catechizing effect, yeah. as you said, oh, that yeah. it has, the, the galvanizing effect it has to communities, which which galvanized Houghton and his communities. Yeah. And also as New, New Testament and Old Testament bore out and Charles Wesley and everybody else bears out, it is a radical witness. Yeah, You know, it's always a witness. It's either a witness that says, this is the most important thing in the world and this is our highest mm -hmm. privilege, or... I really don't care, and frankly, my iPhone or casual conversation is more important. And I often think about that. You know, we recently we, we had a conference in Washington D.C. Our organization and, and with some other Christian leaders, and we were snowed in at the hotel. So mm -hmm. instead of leaving, we stayed over a Sunday, right. and so we kind of gathered an impromptu church service. Yeah. So I was able to kind of lead some work, you know, some hymn singing and stuff. Yeah. And one of the songs we sang was. A mighty fortresses are, yeah, yeah, yeah. and just standing there in in the nation's capital, saying, you know, the the prince of darkness, grim. We tremble not for him. His yeah. rage we can endure, but lo, his yeah, doom yeah. is sure. One little word shall fell him. If you think about what you're singing to each other and how you're forming each other through through hymns, mm -hmm. I mean, it's just powerful. Yeah. Um, are you encouraged by kind of renaissance of hymn writing that's taking place? Not really. No, I think most of the hymn writing that I've seen is is modern songwriters trying to do kind of poppy tunes to hymns. Mm -hmm. And frankly, and I see it in the reform movement, I see it in the Baptist movement, I see it in the charismatic mm -hmm. movement, and and most of it is doing a lot more damage than it is good. Mm -hmm. um, because what it's doing is it's replacing, it's, it, it's, it's not replacing silly songs, it tends to be replacing great old hymns. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that to say a song is actually all about the words, is, is to have a very shallow theology mm. of, of the universe and actual stupidity as well. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the reason you sing, the reason, the reason Hark the Herald Angels Sing gets into Disney movies, gets into the main street as conversation over Christmas, gets sung by every child or almost every child in the West for the last 150 years is because Mendelssohn wrote a great tune. Mm. In other words, it's not enough. I, I hear some of our, our friends who are well-intentioned saying, we need great theology and singable melodies. No, we don't. We need great theology and great melodies. Mm. You know, singable melodies are useless. Nobody cares about singable melodies. People want great melodies. Mm. And so that's what makes it so hard. And so I think what I would love to see is a renaissance in singing great hymns, mm. whether they're modern hymns, old hymns. That has to be the thing. To me, it is a lot of young guys with perhaps a little bit too much confidence and a little bit not enough talent trying to push agendas and it's, it's just not working it's not sticking yeah it's not sticking you know you know if you if you ask if you ask your 10 heroes over the age of 70 who are believers what did hymns mean to them in their conversion in their mm. in their weekly worship in their daily devotionals in their understanding and memorization of scripture in their bonding together in key moments in their christian life and dealing with suffering and growing old 
they will tell you it was huge to them. You ask them, what would it be like for a generation where you only sang a hymn for five years, you never carried it any further? And they, they, would, they would weep, and yet that's what we're living with. Yeah. And, and again, pastors aren't stepping up to the mark and saying, this has to change. What does Christian faithfulness look like in a changing culture? Join us in Nashville for the ERLC National Conference, August 25th and 26th. We will be joined by Russell Moore, Matt Chandler, Andy Crouch, Gabe Lyons, Brian Luritz, Alyssa Wilkinson, Karen Pryor, and others. We'll discuss politics, sports, business, art, discipleship, and more. Find out more at ERLC.com slash events and use the coupon code WAYHOME for a 20% discount. How would you encourage uh, your parent as, yeah. as well? And uh, we're, we're parents. We have four children, and we're constantly trying to teach them the hymns. You know, three we have girls a and a boy. Yeah, three girls and a boy. Yeah, I got three girls. I'm hoping for a boy. Yeah. Well, I got the three girls. So you have the three girls. A lot of princess we, movies. A lot of it is unreal. a lot of drama in your house. That, you know, it is a it, it is a drama. I, yeah. People, I don't have to watch dramas anymore. I live a drama. You live it. Yeah. Yeah. My poor son. He's always like, you know, can we just get out and you know do some guys things but uh how do you encourage parents to sort of catechize their kids using hymns i mean you just do it singing regularly and you just do it you know we were we've been trying to teach eliza uh, you know hymns and i think again we have to understand art mm-hmm. you know tolkien lewis heck jk rowling understand art when they write a children's book they don't try to get children to understand every word that's stupidity because mm. art isn't that. They try to so raise I think, their... yeah. So I think either the simplicity, the simplicity, and I think there's a danger both in this over and in, in the dumbing down, which is prevalent in the charismatic movement and in the over explanation of the reform movement at the minute, is that's not how that's not how ideas are are, are developed. They're developed by art. Look, if you ask Tolkien or Lewis, did they try to make children understand every word in Lord of the Rings or Narnia? I mean, right. they would just laugh because that's not how people learn. Right. We learn by firing our imagination, by stretching our imagination, by aspiring, by understanding some things, getting the gist of others. And after all, our understanding of God, God is very clear from the start, Deuteronomy 29, 29, that you know, some things are revealed, some things are not. So I think we have to, we have to show kids beautiful songs and, and try and help them learn them. And, you know, I mean, I teach them all kinds of songs, you know, art mm-hmm. of all kinds is useful. I'm not an anti-modern worship movement. I just think at the basis of it, there has to be a basis to what we're singing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we should always be taking the, the best of, of what is contemporary and current. But, but if, we don't have a, if we don't have a base, I think we've got a real problem. Well, Keith, I, I really appreciate you joining me today. Great conversation. We appreciate the work that you're doing and the, the gift that you and your wife are to the body of Christ and the, the hymnody you've given us and praying for your ministry. Thank you uh, so much. Future. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Way Home Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes. You can catch previous episodes on danieldarling.com. The Way Home is produced by Gary Lancaster, assisted by David Clossom, and scheduling by Marie Delph. The Way Home is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention.